You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast, where we aim to entertain and inform you over the course of the average commute. I'm Dave, and I'll be joined in just a moment by my buddy and co-host, Jay. Thank you so much for joining us. We know that your podcast rotation is sacred, and we are honored to be a part of it. We'd love to have you rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Also, you can find and connect with us on social. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We always love to hear from you on this episode of Commute. In the relationship between you and your Facebook feed, who really controls who? He's constantly lost, but for over 30 years, a large portion of us have been obsessed with finding him. We're talking Where's Waldo? And what can Google tell us about the highs and lows of 2020? All of that on this episode of Commute. Let's hit it. So, Dave, where does your relationship with Facebook currently stand? You know, we just came out of the year 2020. I know when we started using Facebook, it was innocent. Now it is maybe something different than that. You know, we talk about this a lot. We are, you know, both of us are in our lower, (laughs) heading towards mid-30s. We are the last generation that had life before the internet and life before social media. So I remember when Facebook was a, a, you had to have a college email address and Facebook groups were silly things like, I love dolphins, and which was a real thing that I joined at one point when I was first into Facebook. Like just this silly little way to connect with your friends. Well, I have some questions about the dolphin thing later, but we can talk about that <laughs> off camera. Um, I want to tell you about a report uh, from July of 2014 that was released, and it was titled Experimental Evidence of Massive Scale Emotional Contagion Through Social Networks. And it was published, and it generally freaked out the social media users of the world because it said that in the year 2012, Facebook had unknowingly manipulated the news feeds of nearly 700,000 of its users to investigate how much of the content of their news feeds dictated their overall mood. So unknowingly, you mean to the user. I do mean to the user, yes, not not to Facebook. Um, so f- here's what happened. So for a week, Facebook pumped more positive or more negative content into the feeds of these unknowing participants and then tracked the tone of their following posts. Uh, when this report came out, people were pretty mad. They felt like they had been manipulated by Facebook, and maybe that's a conversation for another day. But when you do sign up for Facebook, you agree to things like this. You agree to let them use your data and essentially uh, sell your data to people for advertisements and studies and things like this. But regardless of that, there are some takeaways from this study. Uh, one is that there seems to be a very high degree of core relation between seeing positive content on social media and making positive posts and vice versa. So what this, yeah, and it, it makes sense if you think about it, but I think what kind of makes people step back a little bit is, is thinking like that social media is dictating their mood that much. You know, I think like when we hear that, like, well, yeah, if you, you know, show people negative things on Facebook, they're going to post negative things on Facebook. I think when we think about ourselves, when we're like, 
likely to say, well, yeah, I see negative things on Facebook, but then I kind of unplug from it and I don't really think about it. What this study is kind of suggesting is that maybe it's having more of an impact on your mood than you think. You know, one of the first things they tell you in therapy, which I have been to, is they start to ask you questions about your social media use because our brains and really, I believe, human beings in general aren't built for that level of connection and that level of consumption. And so for us to consume nonstop things from our friends and our family and from our, our fringe connections is, is kind of an overload to our senses. Well, and I think this study illuminates the fact that we are much more connected to each other than we think. The study also found that if you sort of withdrew emotional posts altogether, so like if you just kind of post generally neutral posts, people are much less expressive online in general. So this can kind of tell us something, especially if you're a business, right? Is that if if your posts don't have much of an emotional impact, you're probably not going to get a whole lot of engagement from people online. You know, fun fact about Facebook. So there's a movie about Facebook called The Social Network, which is a very good movie. I I know it very well. Um, And I have only ever gone to a movie by myself once. And it was the social network. And it wasn't on purpose. I was actually stood up. It was like three ex-girlfriends ago. Um, She didn't show up. So I watched the movie by myself, which wasn't as bad as I thought it'd be. I'm just trying to do the math, trying to figure out who the girlfriend was. I'll I'll tell you off here. So, Jay, you're a smart guy. I mean, you're wearing glasses right now, so we know you're smart. And smart people usually read a lot. And I know you read when you can. Did you read as a child? I mean, did you actually sit down and read full books? Yeah, well, um, I did, and I have proof. Um, I was always, every single year, the second place finisher in accelerated reader points in our school. Nerd alert. <laughs> there was always this one girl. I bet who, you were killing it with the ladies. Well, there was always this one girl who like would double my points. So I would be second with like 350 and then she would be first with like 800 or something. Like it was like. See, I know this isn't the case, but it'd be perfect if you followed that up with, and we're now married. <laughs> well, Jay, when I was young, I hated to read. That might not surprise you. In fact, while I listen to at least one to two books a month on Audible right now, I'm in the car a lot. Hence, us making this commute podcast. I only physically read about seven pages per week. That's exactly one page per night as I fall asleep in my sleep number bed. When I was young, I loved books that required no reading. Jay, I loved Where's Waldo? I was trying to figure out where you were going. I was like, what books require no reading? (laughs) Still popular after nearly 35 years. What is it? that makes Where's Waldo so appealing to people and seemingly immune to extinction. Our hero, Waldo, was originally known as Wally and got his start in the year of my birth, the great year of 1987. The original few books were an immediate success, selling more than 18 million copies in the first few years, which, to give you a number to compare that to, a typical successful children's book sells somewhere around 50,000 copies. Okay, so think about that. 18 million copies in the first few years compared to 50,000 copies, which is considered good. If you're unfamiliar, each Waldo picture is basically a puzzle. It's a sprawling two-page book 
featuring a scene, often a beach or a crowded store, with tons and tons of people, typically ranging anywhere from three to 500 characters in any given puzzle. Somewhere hidden in this picture is Waldo. He's always dressed the same. Thick-rimmed glasses, red and white striped hat and sweater, and a walking cane. Waldo's creator is a somewhat eccentric genius named Martin Hanford. Hanford has only given a handful get it, of interviews about Waldo since its creation in the late 1980s, but that hasn't stopped the niche obsession from growing. The largest gathering of people dressed as Waldo happened in Japan in 2017. 4,626 people showed up dressed as Waldo, breaking the previous record of 3,872, which stood for six years. Jay, you can even find Waldo on Google Earth. We'll link the PDF instructions in the show notes in case anyone's interested, but here's a hint for you. He's somewhere in Vancouver. But let's get back to our main question. Why has this simple character, a character that has spawned video games, a movie script that's been written but yet to be released, and an inspiration for thousands of people to dress up like him every year, why has he had such staying power? Well, we go back to the reason that I fell in love with Waldo all those years ago. Children's editor Carolyn Horn has been quoted as saying the following. I think, firstly... The book's strengths are with boys, and little boys who don't particularly like reading. There's nothing else like it, and it's a brilliant travel book for parents. The books are wonderful because they're very quirky, very colorful, and you can get hooked. Whereas Waldo is such a wonderful name, too, it just hit the nail on the head. Because he's such a nerdy character, adults like him, too. There's nothing in the books that's that difficult, and there's no reason why anyone wouldn't want to buy it for somebody else. I have these very vivid memories of opening up the Where's Waldo book collection that was in our third grade classroom. And at some point in the history of those books, some kid had gone through and just circled Waldo (laughs) on every single page. And I feel like that was the kind of person that you were. No, 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 no. I respected the book. I can picture you with a Sharpie just being like, got him, and just circling him. (laughs) No, I got to add this. Okay, when I was a little kid, I was really scared of masks. And that could have something to do with, you remember Goosebumps, the haunted mask? It it could have something to do with that. I was just terrified of masks. I didn't want to see people when I couldn't see their face. And my grandma had a Where's Waldo mask that I was especially terrified of. I, I would lay at home at night. I remember this as a little kid. I would lay at home in bed and think about that mask. So Dave, the year 2020 was a very hard year on most of us, probably all of us in some way. Uh, how was 2020 hard on you? I'd like to think it was a little harder on me than most. It won't surprise you that I feel that way, um, but it yeah, you're was... you're a very uh, you're a very social person, so I know it was much harder for you in that way. There were long stretches that felt, I'll just be honest with you, very hopeless. I feel like I gained a new appreciation though for a lot of things in my life, but yeah, it was a tough year. Well, and the year 2020 will be studied for a long time by historians, not just because of the coronavirus pandemic, but because of the many highs and lows that we had in the year 2020 as a society. The 2020 year in review released by Google, 
I think is a fascinating time capsule. Google does this every year. They they release a list of the top searches across multiple categories, and we'll link it in the show notes so you can go check it out yourself. The two most popular searches in the year 2020, probably not too much of a surprise what the number one search was. It was coronavirus. The second most searched term were election results. When we talk about people, the top searched person was Joe Biden. Also topping the list were many people that we lost, such as Chadwick Boseman, Naya Rivera, and Kobe Bryant. Yeah, and the Chadwick Boseman and the Kobe Bryant deaths uh, honestly really affected me. Chadwick Boseman, in his death, we've learned a lot about him. He did a lot of of things behind the scenes to serve people. He lived an amazing life. One of the things that came out whenever he, um, whenever he passed was that he had had, uh, and had been dealing with cancer during his entire stretch as Black Panther, uh, in the Marvel movie. So every stunt that he did, he was dealing with that in private, which is, um, heartbreaking, but also a testament to the kind of person that he was. But when we look at the Google 2020 year in review, we also see some really interesting changes uh, in how people search for information online. So when you look at these trends, typically you see trends like how to make money, how to be a millionaire, how to be an influencer. These are things that are very, very common in Google searches. But the year 2020 was a little bit different. The, the words and the term how to be anti-racist was searched more than how to be a millionaire. How to be an ally was searched more than how to be an influencer. And how to help in general was searched more than ever before. Some of the top uh, searches on Google in the past year were how to help Australia fires, how to support small businesses, how to help Black Lives Matter, and how to help during the coronavirus. In fact, Dave, how to donate was searched twice as much as how to make money, despite the economic downturn that the coronavirus brought to our world. How to change the world was searched twice as much as how to go back to normal. And protests near me were searched in every state for the first time in Google Trends history. I mean, isn't that refreshing? Uh, That's really the only word that comes to mind. I mean, I think on normal years, people probably uh, Google how to get away with tax fraud, um, naked people. (laughs) I mean, just ridiculous things. So isn't it it nice? I mean, it's kind of heartwarming to see that our society was searching for things that actually matter. I think when we tell the story of 2020, I hope that this is part of it. You know, this kind of idea that people looked for ways to reevaluate the way that they were living their life, the way that they were helping others, the way that they were viewing their society in this year. Uh, Some how-to trends that were very popular in the year 2020 are always interesting to look at, too. Uh, How to make whipped coffee, for some reason, was very, very high. You probably saw this trend on your social media feeds uh, during the high months of the pandemic. How to make hand sanitizer was pretty popular, as you would imagine. How to make masks, I'm sure. 
right? And how to be a teacher as people uh, were indoors with their children trying to teach them online uh, was searched more than ever before. How to foster a dog was searched more than ever before in the year 2020 as people were more indoors. And uh, insomnia were searched more than ever before, as you would guess, with the many sleepless nights that we probably had as the pandemic was unfolding. Yeah, and I think you can learn a lot about people by their search history. Uh, and for me, I'm going to share, this is a moment of vulnerability, Jay. I'm going to share my search history on Wikipedia. I say it from time to time, but this podcast is your confession booth. It, it really is. Are you ready for this? Th- these are some of my latest searches on Wikipedia. Bald people. <laughs> <laughs> is there an article for bald this, people? Uh, there was, yeah. This just shows my brain. Michael C. Hall. Okay, so he's Dexter. Uh, for some reason, Macaulay Culkin. <laughs> Eugene Levy. The Snowman book ending. We'll talk about that later. John Goslin. He's the guy from John and Kate Plus Eight. <laughs> and uh, also, I just searched Dennis. I'm not sure what I was looking for with Dennis. <laughs> just, just a list of famous people with the first name Dennis. <laughs> That's it. Another week, another commute. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget, please rate, subscribe, and especially review Commute on your favorite podcast platform. Music for Commute is provided by Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. Have a great week. We'll see you next Monday.